everyone. Welcome to Conversation Piece with Patrick Armstrong. I am the titular Patrick, and this is a show where we talk about the missing pieces of the conversations we're already having. Shout out to all our returning listeners, and a high five and hello to everyone joining us for the very first time. Thank you so much. My guest today is a Korean-American hospital chaplain, author, and speaker whose reflections on trauma, grief, and advocating for all manner of people have helped countless individuals navigate their own journeys, myself included. He is also a six-degree black belt and a lover of Cuban food, cold brew, and old black and white noir films. It is my honor and privilege to welcome my friend June Park to the show. Hey, June. Thanks for joining me. Patrick, I am so happy to be here. And let me, let me, you didn't put me up to this. Let me brag on you a little bit. Okay. Because <laughs> I've been a fan of your work since forever, since like the first time I read anything you wrote. And I like you so much that I actually talked about you on another podcast. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mentioned that you had like you had like a great voice for radio, a great face for TV and a great voice for radio. <laughs> and uh, you know, your your the way that you write, the way that you advocate, just your whole life story, all of it has been so inspiring and deeply just moving for me to see and to read. I mean, I'm a fan of your work. I'm a fan of your voice. And so I'm just, I'm just happy to be here sitting with you. Look at, you didn't put me up to this, by the way, before, before, we, start, <laughs> before we hit record. I'm, I just want to lift you up. And for everybody who's listening, they got to know, like, I'm a super big fan of your work. I think you do amazing, amazing advocacy. I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here. Honestly, really, really happy. Dang, I'm going to be honest, you're catching me off guard here. Uh, normally, right after I introduce somebody, I give our, our listeners context for the relationship that I have with the guest, and I was not prepared for you to <laughs> compliment me in that way. Thank you so much for saying that. That really means a lot, because I will say the exact same things back to you. I think ever since coming across your Instagram account and you know diving into the work that you've done around these different topics... I think I've really resonated with the way you speak and the way that your voice translates through your written word. And then listening to the interviews and the podcasts and the different things that you've done, like literally hearing the words from the page become manifest in your voice has been so powerful for me because it's helped inform and influence the way that I approach the work and the advocacy that I do. And so you know, as much as you're a fan, you may be a fan of me. Uh, I am equally a fan of you and the things that you have done, because I think you, the things that you do are, are such a guide and a beacon for folks who are just trying to find the ways and the language to articulate what they're going through. And I think you come through so authentically that it really helps people see that one, it's okay to do something like that and to speak so vulnerably. And two, that you're, you're not alone in the way that you feel and the way that you might be approaching the things that you're going through. So thank you for saying that. I really appreciate that. And, you know, it's reciprocated in every sense of the word. Patrick, thank you. And if I, if I can say one more thing, first <laughs> of all, thank you for saying all of that. Very kind of you. And I, we got to meet last year, last summer. We did. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, like when I was meeting you, can I, can I be truthful? I was a little bit starstruck because I was like, dang. Oh. <laughs> This is Patrick Armstrong here, because like you, you know, like you, you, you still write a lot. But I was like reading a lot of your stuff then, just like I read your stuff now, and like I was like, I feel like I know you a little bit before I met you, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so like, <laughs> like, and then I was, I would wait for your post because I think at that time you were writing like every day almost on Instagram. Probably, yeah, something like that. Yeah. 
So I was like, I, I would wait for your post because I was always like, dang, I wonder what Patrick thinks about this thing. And then you would write on it or like you would mm. write something. And I'm like, oh, okay, this is really, I, I, I didn't know about this little perspective. So like when I met you, I was a little bit nervous actually. Because I was like, I had this idea of you and you maybe had an idea of me. And you know, when you're like friends online for a while and you meet in real life, that's like a thing that happens now where it's just like, yeah. yes. it was nervousness like both ways, I guess. A hundred percent. So then when I met you, I was like, I don't know what to say now. There's so much <laughs> I want to talk about. And then I remember when we, when, we said, when we said goodbye, when I was leaving DC, I was like, do you remember that moment where I was just like looking at you like, all right, man. <laughs> Yeah, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Like, I was like, dang, you're so cool. I don't want to leave. Also, I don't know what to say. Also, I hope to see you get like a lot of layers of feelings, you know? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I, I'm just saying that because like, uh, you know, y- y- you're talking about my stuff or my platform or whatever, but you need to know, like, I was nervous meeting you. I, I, I starstruck. I'm still like, like starstruck in that way. I really look up to you, Patrick, so... You got. I'm, you got to know, and your your <laughs> listeners got to know. I'm gonna be honest. Like, I almost don't even know what how to respond to that. That I don't. I okay. So I just came back from Korea, and I had some similar experiences with folks who only know me from Instagram. And like you said, you know, we're meeting people who we've been friends with online now in real life. Yeah. And those interactions, I feel like kind of that awkwardness to like have that conversation and have people come up and share similar sentiments and compliments, and it's just like. It's interesting to navigate. It's an interesting relationship to navigate. And I 100% remember like us br- moving in our separate directions <laughs> after we were leaving the Unity event. And I would, I do, it's just like, it's like, how do you say goodbye? Because there's so much more conversation that you want to have. And I really remember that conversation and the conversations we had that day because like those were some of the first in person ones that I had outside of the adoptee community that really made me feel the connection and similarities and overlap between myself as an adoptee and someone else who is Korean American, a child and and from a family of immigrants who had like a shared experience in that way, in terms of what it means to navigate your identity, what it means to embrace your culture or reject your culture and try and figure out your way through that from, you, you know, adolescence to adulthood. And I really remember resonating with a lot of things that you were sharing because I felt like, a lot of my friends were coming around too. And then you were sharing like your journey through the chaplaincy. And it was, it, I felt like it was like, you were really reaching a lot of people who either wanted to pursue something similar or just had a lot of questions about that. And to hear, and to, then to be kind of a fly on the wall as you shared your story with them, you know, it was just really powerful to be able to be in that same physical space as you when you were having that conversation. So like the starstruck, the awe, all of it all, you know, I, again, reciprocated. I feel like I, we're in a compliment off right now. Yeah, this, <laughs> this whole podcast to... <laughs> episode will be literally four hours of just going back yes. and forth, thinking of ways uh, to compliment each other. It really, it really, really would be. Um, but I want to be mindful of your time. And again, can't thank you enough for sitting down to to have this conversation with me. And before we dive into, you know, whatever the missing piece of the thing we're about to talk about is, I introduced you a little bit, but for anybody who's listening who may not know you or the work that you do, do you mind sharing just a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, as you had mentioned, Patrick, uh, I'm a hospital chaplain. This month will have been eight years since I've been a hospital chaplain. And part of my work, I'm at a thousand plus bed level one trauma center, is that um, we do grief uh, counsel 
We attend every single death and code blue. We attend to all the level one traumas, which include car accidents, gunshot wounds, stabbings, fire, fall, stroke. And uh, we also talk about end of life care, such as decision making, advanced directives, um, living will, which is about if you end up on life support, what is your um, expressed wishes at that time. And so we do a whole range of different duties and um, probably have seen hundreds, if not thousands of those, uh, my patients dying or have died. And so it is a difficult work. And at the same time, as, as strange as it is to say, I love the work that I do. And so during that time, I was also working, uh, I worked for three years at a nonprofit for the unhoused. And so there I was a staff care chaplain. Because, you know, if you're working at a nonprofit and you're serving um, under-resourced communities, there's going to be burnout. So I was a chaplain for the employees there. And uh, yeah, Patrick, it's, um, it's, it's like I was saying, it's really, really hard work. It's just unthinkable and sometimes incomprehensible, like the, the things that I've seen, the, the range of what I've seen. Um, but I can't imagine doing anything else. I, I really feel like this is the work that I, I'm called to do and where I belong. I appreciate you sharing that. I think that's one of the things that really has struck me about your writing in particular is that you approach it with this level of vulnerability and intentionality and care when talking about all of these experiences, because this is like really heavy stuff. And I don't think you shy away from the heaviness. And I think that you approach it with a mindfulness that we don't see very often, because I think at the end of the day, you know, you're experiencing all of these things with all of the hundreds of thousands of people that you have to go through this and walk down this path with. And I think a lot of us could take that for granted when telling that story to a very wide, broad audience like it is on social media. And I think it's really interesting to experience it as a viewer, as an audience member, when you share just how difficult some of these moments are and the takeaways that you have from those experiences. When did you first realize that this was something that you could do in terms of sharing about these things publicly. And was there a moment that made you realize like, oh, I think I could do this on social media and that it may have a, a greater impact or a, a, a wider ripple effect with people when I share some of these things? Yeah, you know, I I don't think I set out to like be, oh, authentic guy online, sharing vulnerably, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, so... Sometimes I'll, I'll get asked that, like, uh, hey, how did you build your platform? And I don't know how to reverse engineer that, you know? Like, I, I don't know the specific things that I did, but I can say, like, I've learned over time that I have a thin skin and I've learned to own my thin skin. Mm. Like, I just wear my heart out in the open. And um, I can't... The thing that makes my heart that open is I think also what makes me a chaplain and makes me at least specifically uh, fully human. And I, I, I can't help it really, you know? <laughs> Heart is yeah. just always open. My skin is so thin, like all feedback affects me, encouragement moves me deeply. I still 
weep sometimes reading the news. Um, every time I walk into a patient encounter, eight years later, sometimes people will ask me, like, you know, have you gotten used to it? And my answer is always no. I've never gotten over seeing death and dying. And uh, I think the way that I express myself online is probably the same way that just my maybe my disposition is. And, you know, um, in fact, when I did my interview for my residency, which was now, gosh, six, seven years ago, um, the supervisors, the chaplains were a little worried and they were like, hey, uh, are you going to be okay with the amount of work that you got to do? Um, because this residency is very intense. It's a year-long program. And at the end, we officially become chaplains, you know, or I guess we, we get our CPE units. And um, what I said was, you know, I can't shut down the mothership, you know, the heart, mm. because then I can't do the work, you know, it shut that shuts down all the other ships. So, um, I'm going to manage myself with self care. got to process that out in therapy. I have a good community. I'm very, very lucky to have all those resources and people. Um, but I can't shut down the thing that makes me a chaplain and a human. Mm. And so, um, I think they liked that answer because I did get into the residency. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, you know, Patrick, it's not something that I, I set out to do. I know lately that vulnerability has become kind of commodified and commercialized, unfortunately. Um, but it's not something that I'm consciously aware of. I think I just, when I sit down and write about these encounters, you know, details always alter for privacy. The main, the main thing that I'm trying to do is... Um, connect with people because it's stories that bring us together. Mm. And I'm, I'm thinking this is valuable wisdom and experience. And can we share this in this community together? Because maybe in this way that grief was unlocked and that vulnerability was made safe, you would know a way or an avenue or a path, safety, to be able to feel deeply into your grief, into your vulnerability too. And I think the more we can do that, uh, the better and more healed we become. Thank you for sharing that. That's really powerful. Did you always have an affinity for storytelling in this way? Or were you always aware that you kind of did wear your heart on your sleeve in, in, in the manner that you described? Yeah, yes to both. So like uh, when I was real young, right? And I feel like I've told this story before. Um, but when I was real young, I would carry around this like notepad. And like, this is when I was like learning English and, and I had forgotten, it was like a weird transition between forgetting my Korean and learning English, you know, but I was learning English. I had this notepad out and, uh, there was this lake near like my dad's business and I would write down stories about the ducks that were in the pond in, in the mm -hmm. lake. <laughs> and I just <laughs> liked writing stories, you know, and I originally wanted to write fiction, um, in my early 20s, I sent out a bunch of proposals to uh, for like books I was writing. So uh, I made up this whole thing about, I saw this one little baby duck where it was kind of swimming sideways a little bit. So here's this mother duck with all the baby ducks. And I wrote a whole story about why this little baby duck was swimming sideways. And I said, because of the water pollution and because, you know, the climate stuff. And like, I, I was like really, really into it. And then I had a twist reveal. The twist reveal is that the ducks themselves were polluting the water. <laughs> mm. You know, it wasn't the, yeah, it, it was like, you know, oh, we are our own greatest enemy type of thing. Right. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I've always loved storytelling. And I think it's um, Barry Lopez in, in one of his books says, stories have a way of taking care of us. 
um, my father and mother, the way that they would talk to me, and maybe this is uh, an Eastern Asian uh, thing or, or part of our culture, is they wouldn't necessarily talk to me in lessons, like not in a kind of dogmatic, didactic way, but they would tell me a story. And then at the end of it, almost leave it to me to understand what they were saying. Almost kind of like Aesop's fables. It's a very Eastern way mm. of um, storytelling. Um, in fact, I would hear sometimes in Christian circles, like uh, Chinese immigrants, when they would come and learn to preach to American Christians, they would literally have to change their way of thinking, the Chinese immigrants would, because they were used to storytelling, storytelling, and then at the end, you add this kind of like one line, and that's the whole lesson. It recontextualizes the entire story that you just heard, right? Mm. Almost like the, like Aesop's fables, right? Or even Jesus' parables. Sure. But then uh, when you go get into like Western academia, it's all about here are the three points and the supporting evidence. And, you know, one point logically concludes to another. It's like almost like uh, climbing a ladder to make your point. That's a very American westernized way of thinking. And um, it takes, in my opinion, we need both. But if you only do this sort of academic logical progression, this sequence of argumentation, you're really removing the soul. Uh, out of the people that we're talking about, mm. um, it, then it just becomes data. And at some point, you're just giving numbers and stats and facts. But you're not really talking about the people involved and the things that happened to them, what they felt and experienced, and what that means for this person in their community. And so I think my dad and mom inadvertently, as they shared these stories every night, they would tell me a different story. You know, they would tell me all these Korean folk tales and things like that. They were telling me that. Um, a way to understand and even to love people is to know the story that they're living and where they come from. Mm. And so for me, that storytelling was incredibly, uh, I think, monumental and pivotal in the way that I understood the world. And uh, it is very much uh, an Eastern and Asian way of communication. And I think, um, at least in Western academia, some of that is lost in the way that we use argumentation needed but uh, can't be the only way in which we communicate. I think it's really interesting, you know, thinking about how specifically immigrants from East Asian countries or maybe just Asian in general come over and have to literally change the way that they think about telling a story in order to conform maybe to the Western idea of what it means to be a storyteller. And I think that really lines up with a lot of the things that I've been talking about since starting this journey for myself as a storyteller, because I think something that we miss, especially as Western storytellers, is the privilege that it is to tell someone's story. And not only to tell it, but to be on the receiving end of someone's story. I think we've gotten to this point where it feels like we're entitled to someone's everything. So like, not only tell me what your name is, but tell me where you came from. Tell me where your family's from. Tell me all these things that you've went through. And it feels like a lot of times we, we're we demanding that information instead of understanding and recognizing, oh, this person has just gotten real vulnerable with me in any way. And I think I, I share that a lot on the show and on, on the John Chi show is just like, you know, what I've come to understand is it's a privilege for anybody to tell you anything about themselves. And I think that's really interesting that you bring that up because I do think we can't really understand and show people empathy and love if we don't understand the story behind them, if we don't have that extra context of what it means to be that particular person 
because I think we like to generalize stories as well. Yeah, you and, know, and you know what? Generalize and maybe even as bad or worse than that, uh, we tell other people's stories for them or yes. over them. Yes. And so one example and a very this is kind of a microcosm that I see is I may have a patient who has certain wishes and desires about their treatment, about how they want to die. And then you have family coming in and I know that they're all well-intentioned, but each of them also have different ideas and opinions about how they want their loved one to be treated and how they want them to die. And so then very often I'm in rooms, and this is why they train us in uh, family dynamics. Very often I'm in rooms with maybe a dozen different opinions about mm. what this patient wants, what their loved one wants. But in the end, my thought is, what does the patient want? <laughs> right. Are we, can we really just override uh, their wishes and their desires? They have autonomy. They have capacity. They have um, a heart and mind and a desire about what they would like their care to be. And so sometimes our stories get told for us. I mean, we were kind of talking about this just a little bit, Patrick. Um, but, you know, even in the ways in which we perceive our own stories as Asian Americans, Mm. Um, you know, we, we, there's been a lot of talk already about the model minority myth, but a lot of that has been internalized into thinking that I am, you know, silent and I just keep my head low or is that some, but really, I think that was something that that was told to us about what right. we do. But really, if we look at our history, we've always protested. We've always spoken up. We've always advocated. There's always been solidarity and, um, there's always been voices crying out whenever we've, um, uh, been oppressed. So um, even things like, uh, you know, when it comes to grief, I've heard very often that uh, Asian Americans or Asians uh, are kind of, um, I guess, reserved in their grief or we don't want emotions. And there's some of that that's true. I think that there's some, a little bit of cultural dysfunction in that if we're too emotional or something like that, we're not stoic or, or we're, you mm. know, we're not at peace and things like that. But every Asian family that I've seen with their deceased loved one, there has been wailing and screaming, even rolling on the floor, um, lots and lots of venting and shouting and expression. And so I think that when we have someone else tell our stories for us, oh, they're so reserved, they're so quiet, they're so polite, um, that's something that can actually get in our heads. And we can start to believe that narrative. And it really does become this strange feedback loop of what right. I think that I should be or what I think that my people and my community are. Patrick, I'm sure you experience in the adoptee community stories that people put on you. A hundred percent. Yeah. I, I'm sure you know that already. I mean, <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, I mean, stories that people assume about you. And it's because other people who should not have been telling your story have taken your microphone and your pen and are now writing your story for you. And so when it comes to grief, when it comes to uh, our culture, when it comes to the stories that we've lived, it's important that um, we recognize it's not just a privilege and an honor to hear this person's story, but also to not speak when that person is speaking, right. you know, because there is a way of silencing someone that is wrong. There's a way that silence can be used, which is wrong. But there's also a way that silence can be used in which it's uplifting and elevating the other person. Right. So which silence will we choose? And I think the most important thing for me as a chaplain is when a patient is speaking, 
I am going to use my silence for this person, not against this person. And that is a mm. very intentional choice each of us have to make. I love that. I think that's something that I've not heard articulated very often. And it's something that I'm really like chewing and processing on right now in this moment. And I think that's what I want to ask you about. I think that's I think that's right there is a piece that is missing from this conversation, not even from the Asian American perspective, but just from a storytelling perspective in a in a advocacy perspective in general for every marginalized, historically marginalized identity and community is how are we going to use silence to uplift and elevate? And I appreciate you naming that. And I want to call it the missing piece. And I want to ask you, how do we move towards the appropriate way of, of using silence in the way that you just described? How do we get there as Asian Americans, as just individuals who maybe don't have or who have been so so taught and told over and over and have internalized this message of, oh, well, I'm using my silence to then silence you and to cause outward harm, even if we don't realize we're doing that and it's unintentional. How do we move away from that in order to use silence as this platform to uplift? Yeah, Patrick, that is uh, an incredible question. And I think it's such a big question because we're talking about a lot of different spaces, right? Because there's the right. online platform, right. a way in which we can listen. Sometimes there's a news event that happens, uh, like the recent with uh, the finding out of, you know, the Blindside movie was basically a fiction, right? Yeah. Yeah. How do we, how do we actively listen to something like that and use our silence for instead of against? And then also when it comes to provider and patient, when it comes to friendships, when it comes to parenting, when it comes to marriage, uh, when it comes to crises, mental health. Um, yeah, there's so many different situations. And so what I've always found, and this is kind of, I guess, I'm, I'm hoping that this covers a lot of them. <laughs> sure. I mean, <laughs> you're maybe, right. It is very big. Yeah, like, yeah. It is very broad. But and it, I'm, yeah. I wonder what those, I wonder what even those just initial steps might be. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's what I've always noticed is that when someone does find the courage and the space and platform to tell their story, um, when I'm sitting with a patient and they start telling me their story about their fears, their anxieties, how they got to the hospital, what they hope for, um, I notice that when they say something, if I immediately respond to them and reply to them, I notice something that I personally call uh, the grand closing. They just realize not, you know, it, it, it wasn't malicious on my part, but they're like, okay, um, this person, I know what they're really feeling and thinking about this. So I can't say much more. But anytime somebody says a few sentences and I just hold and pause, I just hang back a little bit. They may say a little bit more. Maybe that's to fill the awkwardness of the silence, you know? Mm. Yeah. Um, or maybe they just feel like, you know what? There is more. And you know what, Patrick? There is always more. There's always more. And sometimes after three, four pauses, like I get the real story, you know, like mm. I get the real thing that they're thinking and they're feeling. And I think it would be beneficial for all of us. And I preach this most to myself that we wait and listen longer than we can bear it, you know? longer than we even feel comfortable with before we insert our advice, our opinion, before we insert feedback, before we give our perspective, before we, you know, even if all those things are true, even if my advice is good, 
to just hang back three or four beats, to sort of hang back for three or four minutes, or to allow the space for this person to stay open. Because I've seen the looks in, in patients and families, their eyes and their body language, the way they hold their shoulders. If I know that I've replied too soon, or mm. if, e- even if I just draw my breath in a certain way, because those rooms can be so still, even if, I, even if I move a certain way, I can just see the patient close up. And you know, I've gotten a lot better at that, I think, through the years. Um, not that I, I don't think I was terrible at it, but you know, there are times when I just feel like, oh man, like I should have just waited just another second because now we're on this other thing and I wanted to go back to the thing that they were saying, you know? So yeah, if we could just wait that extra few beats to really, really get the whole story, because I think it's when people feel safe that they start to dig deeper and deeper and then finally you get to the real thing and then here, here's where they're at. I love that. I think that is excellent advice. Something that, you know, we've talked about on the show a lot about listening to understand instead of responding, because a lot of us can will hear something in what someone is saying, we'll load up a response to that thing, and we'll miss a lot of the extra context that comes through. And then, like you said, you know, we're not even taking a beat. We're like right on the answer. It's like, all right, here I go. I have so I have my response here. And another thing that it made me think about is this idea of the safe space and the brave space. (laughs) Essentially, you know, you talked about vulnerability being commodified. And I feel like it's almost become like a buzzword in a way. And we don't treat it with the reverence that it deserves uh, when it comes to someone being vulnerable. And I feel like safe space has become that too. Because I feel like, again, when someone finds safety, there are times where we now, I feel like, can expect them to be brave at the same time to move out of safety and tell us like, how did you get here? How did, how did this happen for you? Like to lead us down the path when maybe they're not ready to share yet. Maybe they're not ready to dive in, to go in that direction. And so the concept for me has been, how do we not only provide safety for someone to find their identity, to unpack their lived experience, and how do we take safety and then empower them to be brave and to enter the space of bravery where they can start to share in whatever way that that makes sense for them. And I feel like even in those moments of silence, that is the empowerment. I feel like you've just given me language for how we can transition that gap, bridge between safety and bravery. Because I think we always want to demand of someone to, now that you found safety, okay, tell your story, tell your story, tell your story, instead of allowing them to be processing, do the unpacking, do that internal work, and then sitting back, hanging back for a beat, for 10 beats, and then letting them understand that I can move there myself instead of having you take me there when maybe I'm not ready. Yeah. You, you know, Patrick, that's, uh, that's something I've been thinking about a lot. In fact, if I were to like take it from a, a, a view from the sky, like there is a tendency, I think, for individuals and communities to, whether intentionally or not, moralize or judge someone out of the grid of our own growth. Mm. And so I have done so much to get where I'm at. Now I'm welcoming you into the community. But for some reason, whether it's out of like, I really want you to get this, or there's a desperation to help, or out of judgment, it's like, I'm going to give you only this much time to get where I'm at. (laughs) You know, even though it took me 10 years to find this community and arrive at these conclusions in this worldview, well, you're going to get about 10 minutes, you know, or right. you got to take this program, you get four seminars, and then you got to be one of us. 
And so I think that also works in, for example, um, once I've seen this a lot in the Asian American community, and I think this is true for maybe many people of color, like once Mount Assimilation is climbed, right? Once an Asian American gets to the top, it's like they want to pull up the ladder or be like, you got to do all the work that I did, you know, to get where I'm at. Or like, uh, I've, I've talked with some Asian Americans who were like, yeah, I've never experienced racism. I never had to struggle. This is a great country. And I'm like, man, did you forget what it was like? And also like, you know, I want to, I, I basically want to tell them like, I think you've forgotten the people behind you because it reminds right. you of how much you did struggle or, you know, there's a lot of trauma wrapped in that and there's a lot of reasons. And so whatever explanation is there, and I want to think optimistically, maybe it's just this community is so wanting and desiring to help that they see someone new and they immediately try to rush them towards the same conclusions they've arrived at. And I think there's a danger there in that if we forget the struggle, we may start to moralize and say, why aren't you moving faster? Mm. But then we got to look at ourselves, like how long did it take us for our fractures to heal? Right? How long did it take us to the people that we had to meet, the experiences that we needed to have, the natural and organic unfolding of all these revelations. It took a long time. It took a lot of effort. And to expect that then for the people who are now coming alongside, there is good intention there, but it's good intention with rushed hands. And so, yeah, I think to kind of answer your point, to kind of respond to that point, I think we're all in sort of a, a... my optimistic explanation is that we want so badly for others to see what we see and to just come to the sort of freedom and liberation that we have, that we may inadvertently hurt people by rushing them and not recognizing, wait, they're fractured. They can't keep up with th- this pace, you know? And I'm still not totally healed yet. I can't right. speak out of the stuff that I'm still working through. And I can't make this person my project as a way to save myself either. And so there's a lot of psychological and sort of personal reasons that that happens. And so I think we not only need to be slow enough to listen to this other person's story, but slow enough to listen to ourselves and our own motivations. Mm. I love that because I feel like that's the period of life that I'm in right now is... I think I, when I came back from Korea, I just had a lot of revelations, a lot of like emotional breakthroughs. And one of the things that I realized was that a lot of the stuff that I've been sharing of my own story online was maybe not, I I think that I was characterizing it as having been done. And I was through the work of whatever it was that I was talking about, whether it be reconciling with the fact that I'll never have any information about my first family or like I've done all this identity work and now I've reached acceptance and you know I'm not, I don't need to move past here so you know I'm sharing all of this outwardly for people because it feels like they're resonating they're telling me that it's resonating but one of the things that I realized in Korea was like okay I don't know that I am there yet with a lot of this stuff and I'm realizing now for the first time in a long time since I started this journey at least that I don't know that I've been listening to myself and I have been trying to project this inner voice that I've been, I've needed to listen to onto other people and trying to get them to do the things that I myself have not been doing. And I think that revelation has been powerful. And one of the reasons that I've stepped away from sharing my own personal story more publicly now 
is just because I'm like, there's some work here that needs to be done. And like you said, I'm not fully healed to the point where I can necessarily be saying the things that I'm saying. And because I don't actually maybe believe those things that I'm doing. And I, but I want other people who are resonating with this work to do those things themselves. Yeah. And maybe that's because I want them to do the work for me instead of me doing the work for myself. Yeah. And you know what, Patrick, I think what's so important is that, you know, in every community like this that you find, everybody's going to be at different stages and phases. Everybody's right. going to be at a different, you know, part of the track. It doesn't mean anybody is more ahead or behind. We're just in different places, right? And, and, yeah. And I'm sure you found yourself, you know, maybe in this area, you're, you, you've gotten the growth that you wanted. And maybe in this area, hey, room for improvement, right? Um, but the encouragement that I want to give you and to anybody who's listening is we need all those different people in that community. Right. We need all those different stages to convene together and to find a way to hear each other. You know, so like this is some years back, I was in a Zoom meeting or, or some online meeting where um, different people were trying to uh, organize a rally. Mm. And what I noticed in this room is that it, it, it involved racial justice. One person was all about, I want to be unified. Uh, I've invited uh, law enforcement to speak, and that everybody had question marks around that. Um, I, I want us to get together, you know, and th the way that he was speaking was basically he was ready for unity. He was ready mm. for all of us to be one. There was another person who was so angry um, and just like, you know, they won't stop killing us. Um, we need justice now. We need to defund. We, you know, abolition. All of that was angry and said, I'm not ready to hear anything about unity right now. And then there was uh, another person who was talking about, um, hey, how can we get the city on our side to gather resources for those who are under-resourced? You know, thinking about it from a logistic, logistical point of view. And so what I recognized in that meeting was they were kind of all right in some way. You sure. know, maybe not all the methods were right. Um, you know, maybe not all the words that were said were kind, which is okay, <laughs> you know. Uh, but we needed all of those voices in that room. Nobody was necessarily uh, wrong. Um, we also did not get law enforcement that day, which I was kind of, <laughs> that would have maybe not been great for that rally. Sure. Um, um, yeah. Anyway, <laughs> all, all that to say, Patrick, like, uh, yeah, you know, I mean, we need all the different stages and phase, phases in each community, and we need the different parts of ourself, you know, mm. the parts that have met that growth, the parts that have healed and reconciled, and then the other parts that are still struggling and wrestling, still angry. We still need the rage and the sorrow, just as we need like the, hey, I found peace in this, or I found growth in this. And, um, you know, I think that just requires compassion for one another and compassion for all the different parts of ourselves. Mm. I really appreciate that. Um, I'm walking away from this conversation with a lot to think about, a lot to chew on. And I feel like every time that I talk to you, I come away with something like that. And I really appreciate it. I really appreciate every time that I get a chance to sit down and, and speak with you because I learned so much. And, you know, this is a short conversation and I feel like you've done a lot of if not educating others, at least educating myself on a lot of these things that I've been struggling with recently. You know, a lot of things that I've been going through and processing for myself in my own journey. And 
you know, I, I'm excited to sit and think about some of these things a little bit more deeply, especially as I go through this therapy journey that I've started recently and, you know, really give myself grace on both ends. What's been healed, what still needs to heal. And I think that's really important for me. And I hope that anybody listening who might be in a similar space recognizes that as well. And I just want to say, you know, even in this conversation, the education that you're providing, that's labor. It's mental, emotional, even physical labor for you to sit here and have this conversation and share these anecdotes, these bits of advice. And I really, really appreciate it. And at the end of the day, we have to also give time for ourselves to learn from other people. So I want to ask you, you know, who are you learning from right now? Who's giving you inspiration? Who's inspiring you, helping you reframe your perspective? Who are those folks? Oh, man, Patrick. Number one, you, of course. Um, I knew I, I had to come back around to that, man. So thank you for that. Uh, yeah, we. <laughs> I wasn't setting him up for that, folks. Yeah. I know that you've listened to this. You've heard other people say a similar answer. Yeah. But I do not set that up on purpose. Uh, you were waving like a $5 bill. And hey, I, $5 is good enough for me, man. I, <laughs> you would have held up What's 100 your yeah. What's your Venmo? What's your Venmo? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, for real. For you, of course. Um, you know, I I feel like I I always, always point out this one person just because, man, I love her so much. I, I read all her stuff. Like, I, I feel like I read and reread it. Um, Liz Kleinrock of Teach and mm. Transform is just a person that I can like, yeah, I can, I can sit for hours and just read all her content and by the end of it, feel charged and ready for the world. Like I, I just love her and her content. Um, her, her, yeah, yeah. I, I definitely want to lift her up. And then, man, I really like, uh, I like Cam. You know, Therapy Redeemed. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, we we had we had a conversation the other day. Um, you know, just a private conversation, just talking. He and I, and um, he is just the coolest dude. And like, he, he seems so like peaceful. You know, when I talked with him after I was done, I felt like you, you know we're just talking as friends. But I was like man, it felt like I, I had therapy or something. Like he just brings that centeredness, you know? A hundred percent. Yeah, yeah. I really like him. And you know what? I share almost every single one of his posts. Uh, Dante Stewart is- Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I love Dante Stewart. He's just, I, you know, I don't want to um, embarrass him, but he's been so encouraging to me personally. Just mm. really, really encouraging. Um, times when I wasn't feeling good, just- you know, hey, how are you? That kind of thing. Sure. And, uh, you know, we were talking about, Patrick, online friends. You know, it's a weird space, right? Because we can be friends with somebody and never have met them in real life. Right. It's just this kind of newer thing. Um, but to me, those online relationships, um, to me, they're real and they're whole, you know? And to have somebody that I that I kind of don't know, but I feel like I know, just reach out and say, how are you? It's like, it, it means the world. And so I just got to lift up uh, Dante Stewart. Stu. Stu, if you're listening, I love you, man. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. Love Dante Stewart's work. Um, definitely influential on a lot of the things that I do for myself. You know, and everybody knows how I feel about Liz. She's been uh, a guest on the show. Was the first guest for our APM Conversation Series. Love Liz and everything that she does. I totally agree feeling charged and ready to take on the world every time that she shares something, you know, and it's always, it's that perfect balance. I feel like of emotion, of energy and of the facts and the, the, the 
I don't know, the other word for facts, I guess. Uh, just that, that data, you know, coming with that that real lived experience and then putting the appropriate amount of energy emphasis and, and emotion into what that work is. And then Cam, I was actually going to bring him up uh, before we got out of here because of the all the people that I follow and take inspiration from, both yourself and him are the two who have most influenced me in terms of how I handle people in my comment section who or people in the DMs who maybe don't come from a place of love. And I feel like both of you two do it differently, but also have this approach of empathy that is just really, really rare, especially in an online space to see so frequently and so over and over and, and modeled in that way. And yeah, love Cam. Um, I, I can only imagine the kind of conversation you were both having. I can't, I can only imagine how incredible that was. So thank you for sharing those folks. We'll definitely have their work linked here in the show notes as well. And I want to be mindful of your time. And again, I can't thank you enough for sitting down and having this conversation with me. So one last question, how do we, how does this audience support you going forward? Oh, that's so kind of you, uh, Patrick. You know, um, I think, uh, you know what? I, I should draw better boundaries, but I read every message that I get <laughs> on Instagram, <laughs> both good and bad. I'm, I'm thankful that it's good. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I guess this is a weird way to answer your question, but I do just want to say thank you to anyone who's ever sent me any kind, even if I wasn't able to reply and I could just do an emoji or, you know, click the, mm-hmm. the double thing with the, make that little heart there. Oh yeah. To the show, reaction, hey, I the see reaction. you. Yeah. 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 Like, uh, like, I'm just so thankful to everyone who has supported me in that way. Cause you know, I, I've written publicly on things like my, you know, my wife, uh, miscarrying or, um, uh, one of my childhood friends who died this year. Um, you know, my car broke down last week, you know, things like that, you know, um, I just get messages. I'm so lucky, Patrick. I don't know how I got this lucky. I get, I get messages from people that don't know me, but just write the most encouraging things. And I read all of it, all the advice and feedback. And I'm lucky that 98% of it, maybe 97, is <laughs> very, very kind. Um, so yeah, I'm, I, and I guess I'm not saying like, hey, everybody message me. <laughs> well, what I, what I try to say is I am thankful. I already feel so supported. I, I, I feel like the community that I, I see online is just so supportive. And uh, yeah, again, I, I'm, I'm so thankful and grateful for that. Um, but yeah, on, on Instagram and maybe a little less so on Facebook, but mostly Instagram, sure. <laughs> <laughs> sometimes on Twitter. Or, or what's now called, I don't even know what's called now. Um, X. I yeah. think it's X. <laughs> <laughs> I said tweet the other day and I was like, oh, wait, I better correct myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I love that answer. I think I've been getting really unique answers to this support question and I love every single one of them. And I love that one. Um, before we close it out, I am going to hype you up a little bit. One of the other ways you can support June is by his book, The Voices We Carry. Still available. Make sure you go out and get that. That's one of the ways that we support is support the works that are created. I also know you're working on a second book that'll come out sometime in the near future, I hope. So yeah, next year, May. Okay. May 2024. Yep. Perfect. So when the pre-orders for that drop, make sure that you are getting on them pre-orders because that's important for authors, especially. Um, But just supporting the people in our community, the people who are doing amazing things like yourself. This is another way that we can do that. Um, 
So outside of 60% of people sending messages that are listening to this, you know, <laughs> so your, your inbox isn't overly flooded, but also going out, give him a follow, purchase his book, get ready to pre-order that second book. Those things are important as well. Um, we'll have links for all of those things in the show notes too. June, thank you so much for sitting down and having this conversation. We've had to reschedule a couple of times because capacity is a real thing. And, you know, we have to, I appreciate you being flexible and being willing to come back on um, when we've had to reschedule. And I appreciate you just being upfront and honest with me about the capacity and the limits that you carry, because I think it's important to model that for myself, for everybody to know that you don't have to say yes to everything. And even if you said yes to something that you can like, it's okay if you have to reschedule or even cancel it completely, you know, like it happens. Like we're all human. We're all people. We all have things going on in our lives. And so I just really appreciate that we were able to find this time to sit down and do this for this particular show. It means a lot to me. Yeah, Patrick, thank you for your graciousness, uh, for your time. And uh, much love to you. Everyone who's listening, much love to you as well. I appreciate it. For everybody out there, if you want to follow us, you know you can do so on Instagram at Conversation Podpiece. If you do feel inclined to leave a rating or review on whatever player you're listening to this on right now, we would greatly appreciate that. And if you're interested in supporting the show in the future in any way, feel free to hop in our DMs or visit our website, conversationpeacepod.com. Until next time, I'm Patrick Armstrong, and this has been Conversation Peace. Thanks, June. Thank you.